Welcome to The Gray Zone on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. Today, we're going to hear my year-end review from an interview I conducted with Michael Welch of Global Research. We'll then hear from The Gray Zone's Anya Parampil about her coverage of the trial of Venezuelan diplomat Alex Saab, who is being prosecuted by the U.S. Department of Justice and the stakes of this trial for the future of international diplomacy. Then we'll hear a portion of the Gray Zone's Aaron Mate's interview with scholar Nikolai Petro, who discusses the overlooked influence of Ukraine's far-right nationalist movement, as well as former German Chancellor Angela Merkel's recent admission that the Minsk Accords, the international formula for ending the post-2014 Donbass civil war, was actually an attempt to give Ukraine time to prepare for a conflict with Russia. This is The Gray Zone. Max Blumenthal is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone. You've you've produced a lot of amazing stories this past year. And uh, with 2022 coming to a close, we're interested in getting your take on the most significant event or or development taking place on the globe over the past year. Uh, That's not getting sufficient attention in the mainstream media. What what story or stories come to your mind? Well, I think there are two themes within one of the stories that is has gotten some of the most attention from mainstream media, which is the Ukraine proxy war. Of course, because the Ukraine proxy war is covered by the mainstream and corporate press as an unprovoked invasion by Vladimir Putin, these other themes which I think are shaping the history of the 21st century going forward are being largely ignored, obfuscated, or distorted. The first theme is the reorientation and de-dollarization of the world economy as the world moves slowly, grindingly, and painfully towards a multipolar world order. And that was accelerated by the economic firewall that the West has built around, attempted to build around Russia as punishment for its invasion of Ukraine, which took place in February of this year. And that has backfired in many ways. The sanctions that have been placed on Russia have boomeranged, and we now see an energy crisis looming on the horizon for Europe the EU plunging to its lowest point, the ruble strengthening to the point that it's so strong against the EU, it's almost unfavorable to the Russian economy, except maybe for Russians living abroad, and Russia enhancing its trading partnerships with countries like China and even India, which is also an ally with the United States, selling oil at uh, discounted prices to these countries as Saudi Arabia which is the basis for the petrodollar, which provides the foundation of U.S. empire, moves into the Shanghai Cooperation Group. So this was all brought on and driven by the Ukraine proxy war. And that theme of de-dollarization and the theme of, and, and and the failure of sanctions so far to 
crush Russia, which suffered actually much more strongly under U.S. economic management in the 1990s, in the pre-Putin era, will send a message to other countries about allying with the U.S. And their other theme is as the, the theme of escalation. There was a major spread in the New York Times attempting to recap the Ukraine proxy war, painting it as a catastrophe for Russia generally and Vladimir Putin in particular. And in this major spread, which is a standalone section inserted in the Sunday Times, the Russian attacks on Ukraine's electrical grid were painted also as unprovoked. And what was unmentioned here were some of the most cynical and also catastrophic terror attacks that have taken place in the modern era, um, almost on the scale of 9-11. First, we're talking about the attack on the Nord Stream pipeline, which was the largest act of industrial sabotage of our lifetimes and caused a gigantic environmental disaster. And then we had the attack on the Kerch Bridge, a $4 billion project, which symbolizes Putin's legacy connecting Crimea to the Russian Federation and the assassination of Daria Dugina, the daughter of the noted nationalist conservative Russian philosopher, Alexander Dugin, who is sort of falsely portrayed in Western media as Putin's brain. These attacks, which were carried out by Ukrainian allies in NATO or Ukraine's security services themselves, were what triggered escalation in this war. And if certain dark forces in the US and UK establishment have their way, the escalation will continue and push us to the precipice of a nuclear conflict, something that extremists within the Russian Duma seem to also be clamoring for. And while the press, the corporate and mainstream press has failed to tell this story, at the gray zone, we've not only told this story, we've provided concrete detail with leaked confidential documents of those dark forces within the UK security services that are intimately connected to their friends across the Atlantic in Washington, not only calling for escalation, attacking the Biden administration is not extreme enough, claiming that Putin will never deploy a nuclear weapon and that escalation must be continued no matter what, but actually exposing the plans to attack the Kerch Bridge. and exposing plans to train a secret Ukrainian terror army to carry out attacks on targets in Crimea, which the Kremlin considers to be a part of the Red Russian Federation and a red flag. So if those attacks continue into 2023, I think we should fear for the continuation of civilization as we know it because of the, the possibility of nuclear war is more dire than at any point since I've been alive. And then I wanted to touch on another theme, of, on another issue if possible if there's time really quickly. Okay, quickly. Well, 2022 also saw the rollback of the COVID restrictions and also the discrediting of the lockdowns, the discrediting of COVID uh, vaccines as a, or the way they were portrayed by Fauci or the CDC director here in the States, Rochelle Walensky, as preventing infection and transmission. The mandates were rolled back. P 
people haven't gotten their jobs back, but the narrative that was spun out in 2020 and 2021 has been largely discredited in the eyes of much of the public. And protesters in China who have protested the draconian zero COVID policy of Beijing have been upheld as heroes in Western media, whereas those who protested similar measures, including internment camps for people who tested positive for COVID, even asymptomatically in Australia, those protesters were demonized by that same Western media. And so that leaves us in a kind of interregnum or purgatory between the rise of a biomedical security state that has kind of put on the brakes and stepped away and what comes next. And I think what the public has learned is not to necessarily trust the science, at least segments of the public have learned not to necessarily trust the science, uh, that these credentialed individuals might not exactly know what they're talking about and that those who were censored on Twitter under White House orders, as we now learned, under orders from the CDC and other government agencies have actually been vindicated in warning about the damage lockdowns and school closures would do to young children in vulnerable sectors of the population. So as the debate intensifies, there will be other, it will be more difficult to impose these measures under the rubric of another pandemic, for example, but there will be a strong effort to do so because of, as we've seen, this pandemic was very profitable for some very powerful forces. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, well, that's very interesting. Um, now, uh, looking ahead at, at the state of the empire, what, what sorts of news and, and stories are you watching for in 2023? Well, I think the as um, former and current officials within the U.S. security establishment openly acknowledge the Ukraine proxy war is a test run for a military confrontation with China over the Taiwan Strait. And one thing we've seen is griping over the delivery of Patriot missile batteries to Ukraine, which can cost as much as $4 billion to operate one battery and require 80 military person, 80 uh, military specialists to operate. Uh, much of those, gr much of that grievance is related to the fact that those batteries will not be sent to Taiwan to escalate against China. So I'm watching for major escalation with China in 2023. The Biden administration certainly has the ability and desire to do that. And I'm also watching domestically the return of Donald Trump to the political scene as a presidential candidate and attempts to unravel his campaign and pave way for a more acceptable Republican like Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who is every bit as right wing as Trump, but less erratic and more subject to the control of the national security state. Someone who's a former JAG lawyer in, the, in Guantanamo, who had a role in the torture of prisoners in Guantanamo and who has exhibited strong neoconservative tendencies with respect to Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, as well as China, Russia, and every other, pretty much every other geopolitical flashpoint. 
And where he diverges from Trump is that there never would have been a DeSantis summit with a Kim Jong-un to make peace on the Korean peninsula, something that 80 percent of South Koreans favor that never would have happened. And this is what scares the security establishment about Trump, that he sometimes goes his own way and had to be sabotaged from within, whereas DeSantis will be a much more stable and predictable figure and possibly more beatable. So I think 2023 might mark the beginning of the post-Trump era. Great hearing your thoughts, Max. Uh, thank you for participating in this discussion and all the best to you in the coming year. Thanks so much, Michael, and thanks for everything you've done this year. Max Blumenthal is a founder and editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone. The site is thegrayzone.com. You're listening to The Gray Zone. Visit us at thegrayzone.com and support us at patreon.com slash grayzone. Anya Parmpil, on December 12th and 13th, you were inside a federal courthouse in Miami, Florida, to cover the trial of Alex Saab, a Venezuelan who has been extradited to the U.S. and is now being prosecuted. Who is Alex Saab and why was it important for you to cover this trial? What are the stakes? Alex Saab is, depending on who you ask or which media outlet you're reading, either presented as a Colombian businessman or a Venezuelan diplomat. And he's actually both. He was born in Colombia and was born to Lebanese and Palestinian parents in 1971. His father happened to run the major textile, one of the major textile companies in Colombia, and th was a, he, as a result, he came from a very wealthy family, had a knack for business at a young age, got involved in the family business at 19, and then eventually, as the political situation in Venezuela, neighboring Venezuela, was changing, and Chavez, Hugo Chavez, was ushering in the Bolivarian Revolution after 1998 and throughout the early 2000s. The Colombian business class, much of the Colombian business class, uh, stopped doing business, uh, stopped uh, trading and, and engaging with the Venezuelan government, and Saab saw an opportunity and essentially set up an a import-export business made most of his money in Venezuela with that company as someone who just was willing uh, to work with this government that was uh, largely demonized in the region. And so he's been living in Venezuela since 2004. He eventually became a naturalized citizen and eventually also became more closely aligned and involved with the Venezuelan government. He was eventually given contracts to build their social housing projects and then that was in 2011. And then afterwards, in 2015, was, give, was given some of the early contracts to uh, secure goods for the clap box boxes that the Venezuelan government uh, delivers to Venezuelan families on a monthly basis, household supplies, cleaning goods. Uh, I'm giving a really summarized uh, explanation of what clap is because it's not necessarily important to the question of who Saab is. Ultimately, 
in April of 2018, Venezuela appointed him a special envoy of its government so that he could continue to uh, make business deals, negotiate business deals on behalf of the Venezuelan government at a time when uh, the United States was increasing its international sanctions regime against the Venezuelan government. So they understood that because Saab was going out making deals with the particularly the Iranian governments and the Turkish governments, uh, that he would fall under intense scrutiny. He was repeatedly denounced by the United States because of someone who was working to subvert uh, unilateral U.S. sanctions pressure. He was seen as uh, violating and enabling Venezuela to uh, violate and get around the these these sanctions. And so he was given this diplomatic status. And uh, two years later, in June of 2020, while he was en route to Iran as part of this special mission, uh, he had to stop to refuel his jet in the archipelago island nation of Cabo Verde on the east on the west coast of, of Africa. And uh, while he was uh, refueling his jet, uh, Cape Verdean authorities demanded he get off the plane and they tried to process him through immigration, which was not originally even part of his plan. And it came out that there was a sealed indictment in the United States and Cape Verde was acting on what they claimed was an Interpol red notice uh, issued for Saab's arrest. It came out later that the Interpol uh, Interpol red notice was actually issued the following day after his arrest, which was why the uh, local uh, economic community of West African courts uh, in Africa actually ruled his detention was illegal and demanded he be released. So ultimately, he was extradited to the United States in October of, 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 of 2021 on money laundering charges. There were initially seven charges. Six of them have been thrown out. Only the conspiracy charge remains. Essentially, uh, any law student will tell you that's because conspiracy is the easiest charge to pursue uh, in, in a U.S. court. And so uh, this trial or the, the hearing that I actually attended last week was not on the money laundering count, but a pretrial hearing to determine whether or not diplomatic immunity applies in Saab's case because his lawyers have asked for the entire case to be thrown out due to the fact that according to the 1961 Vienna Diplomatic Convention, uh, Saab, any prosecution, any arrest of Saab is illegal according to international law because he should be uh, allowed diplomatic immunity. So I went uh, to go cover this trial, which is uh, very central to uh, my coverage of Venezuela that I've, I've been uh, focused on since 2019, since the initiation of uh, Trump's recognition of, of Juan Guaido, and also because of the implications for international law. This is a case on par, for example, with that of Julian Assange in, in the United Kingdom, where we're uh, if he's extradited to the United States and prosecuted, the implications for free speech, I believe, would be on the level of what the implications for international diplomatic law are in Saab's case. So it sounds like the U.S., as in the case of Julian Assange, has essentially captured a non-citizen and is prosecuting him 
for violating laws that the U.S. is attempting to impose across the globe, which are not international law, and thereby shifting the para legal parameters that pertain to, as in Assange's case, publishing, in this case, diplomacy. But what do they want out of Alex Saab? What, why is, what, are they, what have they been trying to get out of him? Well, we should be clear the charges that Saab, or the charge, we should specify the charge Saab currently faces in the U.S. are not in any way related to the CLAP program or any of his more recent work with the Venezuelan government. They are related to the social housing program charges at bank account, uh, because those are the only charges that actually, uh, financial charges that were processed in U.S., financial institution. So they have something to even bring in as evidence, even though uh, Saab's lawyer, lawyers will tell you that uh, the payments and the question of uh, money laundering or conspiracy uh, are based on payments that are very easily explained away. They were, they say, uh, payments that were made for his credit cards and payments that were made uh, so that his son uh, could uh, pay for an apartment in Los Angeles. So the 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 they're kind of getting him on these technical uh, transactions just in order to bring him into the United States and have him under uh, U.S. authority and now prosecuting U.S. court and of course there's a lot in the media that is focused on they they throw a lot of other accusations out there about corruption and money laundering and whether he's a DEA informant or whether or not he is part of a wider network of criminality that's the kind of case that you get or that you read about in the media but the actual charges are not even related to that or the singular charge is not related to that. Well, it seems to me that they've been targeting Saab because he knows how sanctions are being evaded and they want to gain this information so they can go after the big dogs. Well, he is the big dog. He was the one that, you know, when, when he was brokering these deals on behalf of the Venezuelan government, uh, for example, uh, People may recall that in spring of 2020, there were five Iranian oil tankers that arrived in Venezuela, and it was this major triumphant moment for the Venezuelan-Iranian governments. Venezuela was in the midst of a fuel crisis brought on by U.S. sanctions. People will say, how is the country with the world's greatest oil supply going through a fuel shortage? Well, yes, Venezuela has the largest crude reserves in the world, but it's heavy crude. It, it, it They need light crude and other chemical inputs to actually dilute what they can pump out of their ground or even get it moving and then convert it into fuel that is combustible for engines and for automobiles. So yeah, they have this fuel, but because U.S. companies that traditionally sold Venezuela these products and European companies were no longer able to sell as a result of sanctions, they lost everything that they needed to process and treat their oil. And so Iran stepped in and and sent Venezuela the supplies that it needed and broke the the siege, really, of Venezuela. The Trump administration even sent a naval ship uh, to the Caribbean Sea as these tankers from Iran arrived in 2020. The U.S. sent a naval ship uh, in order to intimidate and send a message that they were potentially going to act or to, in order to enforce the economic siege of Venezuela. But the, the tankers arrived and Venezuela was able to double its oil output the following year. And so this was something Alex Saab was responsible for. 
And part of the evidence that we reviewed in court, which I wrote about at the gray zone that was presented in court, was actually um, letters that the night before, according to Saab's bodyguard who testified, the night before he was arrested in Cape Verde, President Maduro had a meeting at the presidential palace in Caracas with Saab and several Iranian diplomats stationed in Caracas. Afterwards, President Maduro gave uh, three documents, sealed documents, to Saab's bodyguard and asked him to deliver them to Saab so that Saab could uh, deliver them to the intended recipients. And those intended recipients happened to be the Ayatollah in Iran, as well as a, the Iranian agricultural minister and a, a, an advisor to the Iranian vice president. These were letters sent by President Maduro to the Ayatollah and from Venezuelan Vice President Delcy Rodriguez to the two other officials. And uh, Saab was entrusted with carrying these documents as part of his mission to Venezuela, uh, to Iran, par uh, representing Venezuela. And he was carrying those documents according to his bodyguard in a they were sealed in his briefcase in his hand when he boarded the plane to Iran uh, in June of 2020. Uh, then he was arrested immediately uh, afterwards and all of his possessions were seized. It came out in the court as well uh, through the testimony of one of Saab's lawyers in Cape Verde that those letters had actually been opened, removed from the briefcase, placed in another uh, suitcase altogether and that the seal on the letters had actually been broken. And he was quite surprised uh, when we were listening to his testimony, when he was recalling the feeling of, of finding these letters, realizing that they had been uh, diplomatic correspondence between the Venezuelan government and the Iranian government, that they'd been opened. We don't know who opened them. We just know that uh, someone who had access to them after uh, Cape Verdean authorities seized them, opened them. And so in those letters, they were talking about these exact issues, the question of, of oil, uh, increasing oil capacity and uh, or exchange of oil and trade between Iran and other issues pertaining to food and, and strengthening relations between the two countries. So there, in that sense, was no question, at least, that he was on a diplomatic mission when he was arrested, which his lawyers say is the crux of their argument that diplomatic immunity should apply in this case. So Alex Saab was at the fulcrum point of the diplomatic and economic resistance that saw Iran go over 5,000 miles across the globe to deliver crucial oil supplies to Venezuela and break not just the U.S. siege, but to disrupt U.S. hegemony over the globe. And I think that really speaks to the significance of this case. Are there any other scenes in the courtroom that stuck out to you in I think there were some remarkable exchanges between the judge and Saab's defense team today, December 20th. I don't know if you want to go into that. Yes, unfortunately, I was not there today, which was when the prosecution and defense lawyers delivered their oral arguments, their final argument in this, in the evidentiary hearing. And we got to see more of what the judge was thinking because he, he remained quite neutral and measured throughout the the hearing uh, but today we got to see a little bit more where he's coming from so I didn't get to actually witness this I'm going based off of uh, a conversation that I had with Leonardo Flores 
friend of the gray zone he, you can see some of his writings he's he's put up on our site before and also uh, tweets from uh, the Associated Press reporter Joshua Goodman who was in the court and what stuck out to me was that it sounded like those school Scala J Judge Robert Scala he didn't he did say that he's going to rule by the end of the year. He didn't make a decision today, but he made it pretty clear that this is a political case and even suggested that ultimately the State Department would have a decision to and in, 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 in how to rule on this case because he was he was for the first time really drawing uh, uh, dr drilling home the fact that the United States government does not recognize the Maduro government. And so how can we recognize Alex Saab as a diplomat if we don't even recognize the government that he's been appointed to represent, which was not a question that was actually brought up really throughout the two weeks of, of evidentiary hearing that we had last week. We weren't discussing, we weren't hearing any arguments about who was the government of Venezuela or who was the rightful, who represented the rightful government of Venezuela. This is something that Judge Scala decided to bring up today and apparently even brought up the question, uh, this hypothetical scenario where he was saying that Saab's diplomatic status was akin to if Donald Trump, after not recognizing the results of the 2020 election, had appointed himself president and then appointed himself, uh, gone to Iran and was based on the fact that he'd declared himself president, claiming that he had some sort of immunity so that the United States would have no recourse to receive him. A very strange hypothetical scenario because like, none of that would even make sense or like, it doesn't make sense that Trump would go to Iran, even if that were going to be uh, something that he did. I mean, it's just absurd. But beyond that, if according to his metaphor, if we're up to apply the meta his metaphor to this scenario, first of all, Guaido is the individual who declared themselves president, not President Maduro. And more importantly, in his scenario, Trump wouldn't have the ability to issue any diplomatic passport or appoint anybody uh, uh, as a diplomat, um, even if he wanted to, because he didn't control the State Department or any government agency, regardless of his own view of the 2020 election. That's not the case in Venezuela. Maduro is the only president with the capacity to print a diplomatic passport uh, because he controls every aspect of how you would define a government, whether it's the borders, the government ministries. However, the judge rules there will be an appeal, whether from the U.S. DOJ or from Saab's defense team. The judge said today, Judge Scola said he would rule before the end of the year. Do you have any indication of how this might go? I mean, I can't make a prediction, but it's pretty clear based on what he said, if he's suggesting that the State Department has a say that this is a political case and it's not about which countries have the right to appoint diplomats or whether or not sovereign countries have the right to appoint diplomats, who is a diplomat according to Venezuelan law. These are the questions that we were hearing throughout the evidentiary hearing, uh, that we were hearing arguments related to throughout the uh evidentiary hearing but now that's not the questions that he's asking and it suggests that he would uh, rule uh, that diplomatic immunity doesn't apply here i mean it's, it's amazing that a federal judge or anyone in the u.s would still consider juan guaido to be the president of venezuela 
when he controls nothing. Nicolas Maduro controls the foreign ministry and all of the consular functions of the Venezuelan government to be able to confer diplomatic status. Juan Guaido can't even confer. Uh, he has he has no authority. But that's this is because the State Department of Joe Biden, led by Anthony Blinken, veteran regime changer, still considers Juan Guaido the president. So we're going to continue following this case. At the gray zone we're going to talk more with anya at the gray zone and others following this case um so we will be back you're listening to the gray zone visit us at thegrayzone.com and support us at patreon.com slash gray zone Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Nikolai Petro. He is professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island and author of the new book, The Tragedy of Ukraine, What Classical Greek Tragedy Can Teach Us About Conflict Resolution. Nikolai Petro, good to have you on. Nice to be with you. Before we get into the book, let me just ask you your thoughts on the state of the Ukraine war, where we are at today and where you see this going. Well, it looks like it's going to drag on. Of course, that could be just a negotiating stance uh, uh, for all the sides involved. Um, my focus has never been on the battlefield successes and failures, but really to look and understand how this conflict came about and what is likely to uh, resolve it in the long run, to lead to what I call social harmony. Well, yes. And so this is, I think, um, what makes your book so unique is that you have, well, first of all, you have access to Ukrainian sources that otherwise we just do not read about in the uh, in the NATO states. Um, but also you frame this conflict not so much as a international one, talking about um, all the factors that get a lot of attention, such as NATO expansion, you really focus on the internal dynamic here and how the war in Ukraine is really an outgrowth of, a, un, of an unresolved internal conflict in, inside Ukraine that's been going on for a long time now. So for people who are not familiar with this line of thinking, who are more, who have seen the arguments about NATO expansion and the U.S.-Russia conflict, Talk to us about how you frame the internal Ukraine conflict and how that has led to this crisis of today. Well, I see the conflict as having multiple layers. In other words, there is Russian aggression and there is a battle between, as you correctly put it, uh, the NATO states and Russia over control of Ukraine. And uh, overlaying that, however, is a deep-seated and long-lasting internal conflict, which I see as a conflict over who gets the right to define what it means to be Ukrainian. And this conflict, as I point out by reference to historical sources, has been going on for at least 150 years. 
you can trace this debate between uh, Galician or Western Ukrainian intellectuals and Malaros or um, uh, Eastern Ukrainian and Southern Ukrainian intellectual elites. And they each have very different uh, definitions of what it means to be Ukrainian, and they haven't been able to find a way to reconcile with each other in a way that would allow a national civic identity to emerge that would unify the country. And I keep coming back to this internal debate because to me, it's the most important one. And I argue that it's the most important, more important than the uh, battles between Russia and Ukraine and the battles between the West and Russia over Ukraine, because if Ukrainians were united on their identity, there wouldn't be all these external forces who could pull them apart. They could simply say, leave us alone. We know who we are and we you know, have made a, a decision. But as it is uh, right now, each of these constituencies appeals to uh, external forces who are only too happy to pull the country apart. And the people suffering are average Ukrainians. And in terms of what you call Galician uh, Ukraine, that's the uh, Ukrainian identity that is based in the West, historically aligned with uh, the Banderite movement, uh, the movement of uh, Stefan Bandera, the Nazi collaborator. Talk about how they see the ethnic Russian component of, of Ukraine and how that has fueled into the, the current crisis of today. Well, historically, that is to say, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, um, it was merely a sense that the people in the rest of Ukraine, outside of the four westernmost regions, really had to be taught to appreciate the value of Ukrainian independence and uh, who they really were as opposed to identifying too closely with Russia. Over time, however, the frustration of these nationalist forces who failed to obtain national independence after World War I, uh, and then again in World War II failed in the ill-fated alliance that um, the organization of Ukrainian nationalists forged with, um, with, with Nazi Germany, um, that resulted in increased hostility and frustration uh, with their Eastern counterparts. And as a result, uh, after, the, um, after the declaration of Ukrainian independence in 1991, the country really had to come to terms with that identity. And unfortunately, uh, rather than trying to uh, establish a framework where each region could define what it was comfortable with uh, locally in terms of its identity, which might differ from the standards of another region, but would nevertheless uh, be defined subordinately to the priority of national unity, in other words, a form of, confeder uh, a form of federation 
which was uh, actually advocated by uh, a number of Ukrainian politicians, including uh, Western Ukrainian uh, politicians at the time and the, the leader of the uh, very popular Ruch movement in Western Ukraine. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that was dismissed as unacceptable uh, by uh, nationalist strands, which were always very prominent in uh, the local politics of the Western regions. And uh, since, 19, since 2014, it has become, I would say, uh, the, the dominant ideological matrix for the current government, um, both Poroshenko and his successor Zelensky. Uh, that's not to say, and I'm very careful to, to say this in the book, I don't define everyone in government as a neo-Nazi or a fascist. That's not correct. But um, the far right plays an inordinate role in shaping the political boundaries of national discourse. And this uh, existed uh, before 2014, but uh, was exacerbated by Russian intervention in Ukraine after 2014. And of course, uh, now is, is more or less uh, the standard level of political discourse. And the problem with this, obviously, is it doesn't allow for the political participation of a huge number of Ukrainian citizens. And this is a problem for the nation going forward. What do we do with anywhere between a, no less than a quarter of the population to more than a third? How do they, how are they to be integrated into uh, a modern Ukrainian pluralistic society that has aspirations to join a modern pluralistic European Union? As you point out in the book, it's not just Russian intervention that has helped empower the far right in Ukraine since 2014. Uh, the far right played an outsized role in the coup uh, that uh, overthrew Yanukovych in 2014, which set off the Donbass war. Uh, the far right received uh, a major share of the new cabinet positions inside that government. But let me ask you to address the counter argument, which is that, well, look, if you look at the polls, if you look at election results, the far right don't fare very well. They they only have a they only get a very a a a, uh, a tiny percentage of the vote in elections. So how is it then that the far right plays a influential role in Ukrainian politics if their political support is so marginal? Because they define the tone of politics. They are the predominant intellectual uh, elite. Now I don't mean that in the sense of having the dominant thinking, uh, but rather the dominant ideological framework and language of politics. And all you have to do is look at the statements of senior government officials, the head of the National Security and Defense uh, Council, um, Mr. Danilov, um, leading politicians in the Rada and uh, senior advisors to the president. These are all important uh, figures. And it's not only Zelensky. Some even argue, I have no way of uh, saying whether this is true or not, that Zelensky is more of a figurehead, a popular voice that uh, 
can appeal to Western audiences, he plays no doubt, no doubt a very important role, but he has a large staff and administration under him who embrace the harsh rhetoric of the far right very openly and unabashedly. And as I show in my book, it's not hard to trace these statements back uh, to senior officials going back uh, eight years or more. And let me ask you to discuss something you document in your book, which is the role of groups like the right sector uh, in establishing these um, institutions, uh, paramilitary organizations, battalions, uh, groups that basically act as enforcers of their agenda. What that looks like on the ground inside Ukraine and how that leads to influence for the far right over Ukrainian politics. So the parliamentary opposition uh, refers to the Svoboda party, which has had uh, representatives in parliament since 2012. And the extra parliamentary um, opposition refers to the right sector and people associated with Dmitry Yarosh. What I point out by um, a careful analysis of their documents and public statements is that these two groups interact with each other and are largely interchangeable. In other words, they form the legal and extra legal parts of a nationalist agenda which seeks to transform not just the politics of Ukraine, but all of Ukrainian society to meet a more nationalistic standard uh, as it sees, as, as they would define it, which is the appropriate, which would be the most appropriate one for uh, Ukrainian society. Uh, one of the key core elements, I would say, of uh, the far right is its anti-liberalism uh, and the desire to replace the uh, the temptations which they see of both socialism on the left and uh, traditional classical liberalism, uh, maybe uh, in the center, individualism, with uh, a sense of national purpose and mission, uh, which would unite all of the Ukrainian people uh, and, uh, and, and distinguish them from all of their neighbors, both in Europe and in Russia. Uh, to, to make it very simple and clear, Ukraine for Ukrainians, uh, uh, yeah, Ukraine for, for Ukrainians, that's their ideal. And uh, you talk in the book about Ukrainians who I'd never heard of. For example, and correct me if I'm mispronouncing his name, Sergei Savoko. Yeah. Who yeah. was an old friend of Zelensky and actually a former comedy partner of his, of his back when Zelensky was... One of the producers. One of the producers of, uh, of Zelensky's television show. Yeah. And so Zelensky comes to power. He's elected on a platform of peace. More than 70% of the vote goes to him. There's a lot of hope that the war in the Donbass that began in 2014 after the U.S.-backed coup will end and that Zelensky will preside over making peace. And so as a part of Zelensky's efforts to make peace, he appoints his friend, Sergei Savoko, who's from the Donbass, 
who unveils a uh, platform for dialogue and reconciliation. Talk about what Saboko tried to do and what happened to him uh, when he tried to pursue this peace agenda. Well, uh, at first, things looked very promising because he was talking about establishing a nationwide platform, as he called it, for reconciliation and unity. Um, and uh, he was working from the grassroots rather than the top. The problems that he ran into were when he started to say, because he himself is from the, the Eastern regions, from the Donbass, he started to say, well, both sides need to re-examine their assumptions. Eastern and Western Ukrainians need to re-examine their assumptions about each other and learn to communicate with each other. And in this process, he pointed out that the dominant discourse in the past has been of, uh, at least since 20, 2004, if not, if not earlier, uh, or, and especially since 2014, the dominant discourse has been of Western Ukrainians uh, trying to change the people of Donbass, to Ukrainianize them. And they don't necessarily feel that they need to be doing anything more, that they're perfectly good Ukrainians as they are. And so Sivoko argued that both sides needed to step back from their ideological assumptions and figure out a way to, uh, to understand what it was that they had in common and to share and to build on that. And this greatly offended the um, nationalist uh, elements, which, uh, as you pointed out, once uh, the move was made to announce a, a national movement for this sort of reconciliation and unity, attacked Sivoka uh, personally and uh, threatened his life. And as a result, um, he had to um, basically withdraw from, from public view. Now, he was still very courageous and public until uh, early, uh, early this year, after the, uh, until before the Russian invasion. Um, but after that, uh, he basically had no more ability to speak in public and has since disappeared from view. Um, I see Sivoka's national platform as very much in the same vein as other a very uh, inspiring, to my mind, examples of unity and reconciliation after the trauma of warfare, uh, which I refer to as, uh, I point out, are the Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. People don't often know that uh, these have been in existence in for over 50 years and have worked been at, at work in over 40 different countries. And so there's a rich history of um, these sorts of organizations getting hostile groups together and working out a shared platform upon which to build uh, a new society together. And it's voices like his, uh, Ukrainian voices like his that we just don't hear about uh, in, in the West. And we also don't hear about often the Minsk Accords, which was the 
peace agreement reached in 2015 to end that war. Uh, you write a lot about Minsk in your book, and uh, you, I think, I think it's fair to say, put the majority of the blame for the failure to implement Minsk on the far right of Ukraine and their successful intimidation of the Ukrainian government. Um, I'm wondering if you saw the recent comments, though, from Angela Merkel, the chancellor of Germany, who seemed to admit that Minsk was never actually uh, intended to make peace. It was just intended, in her words, to, quote, give Ukraine time uh, and use this time to get stronger. That's what Merkel said. And her comments were interpreted by uh, many critics as being an admission that the states that brokered Minsk, uh, Germany, France, we're never serious about using it to make peace to end the war in the Donbass, but basically stalling for time to help Ukraine build up uh, its weaponry uh, and its armed forces to fight this war today. And Poroshenko, who signed Minsk, has previously made similar comments. I'm wondering what you thought about Merkel's comments. Another interpretation is that she was simply trying to placate the uh, hawkish crowd inside NATO states who are criticizing her for daring to try to make peace back then with Ukrainian rebels. But uh, how did you take her comments and um, mm. how do you see now the failure of Minsk and the inability for it to be for it to be implemented and avoid this war? So I think the history of Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko is clearer on this than it is with uh, Merkel and her French uh, counterparts. Um, so for Poroshenko, this was never a serious negotiating framework because, as I point out, if you read the text of the document, it essentially allows for regionalism in Ukraine. The exact nature of the region, uh, regionalism that was to be granted to the eastern portions of uh, Donbass um was to be negotiated in the Minsk process but um it the, the very concept of regionalization uh was uh let's say put it this way is anathema to uh nationalists uh nationalist discourse in Ukraine so that was a non-starter for them and uh Poroshenko realized this, I think, very quickly and uh, consequently shifted to uh, the rejection of everything in Minsk, <clears throat> meanwhile, <clears throat> um, building up the armed forces as quickly as possible. For Merkel, I think that she and her French counterparts and the United States uh, really pursued up until the very uh, end, until until early 2022, a dual track policy. In other words, if Ukraine would have been willing to reach a negotiated settlement, they probably would have gone along with that at the time. Nikolai Petro, professor of political science at the University of Rhode Island, author of the new book, The Tragedy of Ukraine, what classical Greek tragedy can teach us about conflict resolution. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Gray Zone of Pacifica Radio. 
You can support our work at patreon.com slash gray zone and read our articles and original investigative reporting at thegrayzone.com. Along with my colleagues, Anya Parampil and Aaron Mate, I'm your host, Max Blumenthal. <laughs>